The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded during the 2019 Convivium Irenicum at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. The theme of the 2019 Convivium is Reforming Justice, Protestant Wisdom, Economic Freedom, and Modern Injustice. In this plenary session, Brad Littlejohn, the president of the Davenant Institute, presents a short history of freedom. Before listening to the audio, here is a bit of the conversation I had with him, reflecting on his talk and on the conference. Brad Littlejohn, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with us about your presentation, A Short History of Freedom. I really enjoyed that, and I think our listeners, both our new and our longtime listeners, will benefit greatly from this overview of freedom and, and how to place it within the context of reformed way of thinking. I want to ask you a couple of questions before we listen to the audio. The first question is, how do you put your uh, talk into a nutshell? What is, uh, what's the basic overview of your talk, especially for uh, the new time listener? And then the second question that we'll get to is, what are your reflections on uh, the talk as a presenter, especially as president, in this national uh, event that we had? Yeah, well, as far as putting my talk into a nutshell... What I'm trying to get in the talk is to uh, ask some questions about our concept of freedom, which I think is really the most pervasive word in American political discourse and, and, and more fundamental than anything else to how we kind of think of ourselves as Americans. And I think by and large, when people think about the concept of freedom, they think about it in terms of um, something along the lines of what we'd call a freedom of non-interference. Freedom is, 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 is effectively being left alone to make your own decisions. And we might disagree over exactly uh, how much you should be left alone um, and what areas you should be left alone, but particularly um, modern-day conservatives are likely to stress that we should be left alone in the economic sphere, and modern-day liberals are likely to stress that we should be left alone in the kind of private morality sphere, particularly sexual sphere, um, reproductive sphere. But both are sharing the same kind of basic definition of freedom. And uh, what I wanted to get at in the talk is that this really is a very um, historically, relatively new concept of freedom. I don't want, you know, I don't want to pretend that there's no anticipation of it earlier in history. But if you survey the way in which freedom is talked about through Western history, there's actually a number of different um, concepts of freedom that you can isolate. And this freedom as non-interference doesn't really become the prominent one until really the 19th century. That is an important insight, isn't it? Um, that this idea of freedom as non-interference, in our, our culture, the way we are operating now, we seem to think that that's the pinnacle of what freedom has always been. And uh, you, But you answer that by going back farther than the 19th century to clarify some of the misconceptions that exist presently. So 
um, the first thing I do in my talk is just to kind of introduce these variety of ways of understanding freedom and the different threats to freedom that have been emphasized at different times in history and um, by Christian thought. Um, I want to draw attention to some problems with the concept of freedom non-interference from a Christian perspective. And then I wanted to, um, what I do in the talk is I um, articulate that, that actually this idea of the, the reason why we have these different concepts of freedom in history is because freedom is actually this holistic concept. It's kind of like, kind of like the concept of health. It's hard to define health. You can define, you can see what sickness is, but health is sort of defined in relation to whatever the particular uh, sickness that you're, you know, recovering from is. So freedom is sort of defined in relation to different threats to freedom. And um, I kind of I map out a fourfold classification of the, of, the, of, the, of the different aspects of freedom that contribute to a comprehensive concept of freedom. And the point of this is to argue that if, if we're going to have a kind of responsible Christian politics, it needs to be one that actually takes into account all four of these dimensions of freedom rather than just stressing one. Excellent. I think this talk is going to be very helpful for anyone from high school on up to get a sense of the overview of freedom from a classical Protestant point of view. There's two things that can help the listeners here. We're going to put in the show notes timestamps for each of those great thinkers and periods of time that Brad mentions, and you can go back and listen to those segments if you want to. And also, we're going to make available a PDF that has the, the two-axis for field uh, conception of freedom that Brad is suggesting to have a holistic sense of freedom and that'll be available on our website you can just do a search for Brad's talk. Now to the second question as a presenter and certainly as a participant, longtime participant in the Davenant events, uh, what did you enjoy about this particular uh, national conference that we had? Yeah, well, I think I was particularly pleased um at uh, the irenicism on display. That's something that we talk about a lot, just kind of um, charitable disposition in pursuit of truth. Um, but it's particularly striking this year because I think in previous years we've often, you know, we've handled sort of more um, historical topics. Um, and when you're doing historical topics, it's, you know, easy to kind of, people to, people to have different ideas about how we should actually be, you know, living out our Christian life today, and it doesn't necessarily come to the forefront when you're having historical discussion. We still have plenty of those discussions, you know, outside of the formal sessions in the past. But um, this year, we really highlighted you know, some very practical questions on very, you know, divisive issues: how we think about freedom, how we uh, think about justice, how we approach politics and economics. Um, you know, these are these are often polarizing issues, even among Christians who share a lot in common theologically. And we were able to to broach those conversations and um, pursue them in a really uh, fruitful, intensive, and yet I think really charitable way. Um, I mean, I'm just I'm I'm always impressed by how um, you know what what you can have you know the convivium you get you know, wide ranging conversations that just like you know a lot of uh, goofy joking conversations that are just building relationships and then you can have really intensive conversations where you're just wrestling through an issue for hours on end. Um, I mean, I had one conversation that probably went started at about 11:15 p.m. and went for two and a half hours, you know, wow. wrestling with the uh, how should we think about the question of religious liberty. Uh, so, and I think we we both came away from it, you know, um, 
we were arguing, you know, we were arguing, but, you know, with a real appreciation <laughs> of, of, of one another and, and a better understanding, you know, it's rare for both people to come away feeling like they've really learned something, um, in the conversation and, and, you know, divergent positions actually noticeably drawing closer together. It seems like, you know, that's, that's what rational argument should yield, but it's, it's very rare nowadays. So. Yeah, that is the, what's great about the convivial experience where we're not just listening to lectures and then we just kind of go off and do our own thing between them. But, uh, you know, we're having dinner together. There are seating areas where a lot of conversing and interaction goes on. And it's really something that we look forward to every year. So I want to thank you and all those who are involved in the planning, the board, and the participants for making it possible. And now we'll go ahead and listen to your talk. All right. Thank you, Mark. In this talk, I want to spend some time exploring the concept of freedom and what we mean by the word freedom. I don't think there's any other word that is quite so pervasive in our political and indeed economic and generally ethical discourse here in America. I don't think there's any concept that is so fundamental to how we think of ourselves as Americans as this idea of freedom. But it's really striking to note all the different contexts in which it's invoked and different uh, parties by which it's invoked, different objectives for which it is invoked. And I don't think we're going to make much progress in term, terms of talking about what a properly reformed conception of justice looks like until we can wrap our heads around the sometimes contradictory words, contradictory ways in which we think about this word freedom. This was brought home to me recently uh, by a, a kind of a hit piece, uh, an opinion column that appeared um, in a local newspaper in Northern Virginia about um, the Patrick Henry College, where I teach. And of course, Patrick Henry College, the motto of the college is for Christ and for liberty. So the idea of freedom or liberty, and, and note, I'm going to be using these words interchangeably in my talk. The idea of freedom or liberty is absolutely central to how Patrick Henry College um, understands itself and its conservative mission. And of course, it's named after Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death. Well, this opinion column, which was particularly wanting to um, attack Patrick Henry's college's stance on homosexuality, um, and in general it's, it's sort of explicitly evangelical Christian commitments, uh, was saying that basically the, the problem with the college is that it didn't, it didn't stand for the kind of free speech that its namesake did. Uh, it, it says, for instance, that the student, uh, college student life manual says students' communication, both written and verbal, is to be respectful at all times. But who decides what is respectful? Patrick Henry College needs a speech code offering the same freedom to speech as its founder does to religion. So by saying that students' need, speech needs to be respectful at all times, and by saying that students have to, actually the article doesn't even say this, but it's true that you know, students have to sort of sign uh, a, a statement of faith and code of conduct that they're going to abide by as students, um, and their speech needs to be respectful of that, um, that, that is, this is a draconian crackdown on their freedom of speech. And it says at the end of the article, Patrick Henry College cannot drive both ways in the highway of free speech. It must fully allow for robust, open debate on campus. It is the logical responsibility of a college founded on the bedrock of freedom and named after one of its greatest champions to protect the free speech of its students. Patrick Henry College's student life manual must offer the same free speech liberties its founder relies on. 
To deny such liberties would stand in direct opposition to its own values. Now, there's a number of things we could point out that might be wrong with this article. I mean, we might point out, for instance, that Patrick Henry himself was actually a champion of, of, of some form of religious establishment in Virginia, and so obviously um, didn't necessarily mean quite the same thing by free speech as uh, many uh, modern uh, purveyors of that term. But uh, many, I think, conservatives would respond to this by saying, well, no, this is a fundamental confusion because the constitutional right of free speech and the sort of thing that Patrick Henry was concerned about is very specifically a political right vis-a-vis -vis the federal government. The government is not allowed to restrain your freedom of speech. But this is not, not a right that's addressing um, whether you know, a college, uh, a private organization can limit freedom of speech. If a student agrees to come there, and they have agreed to limit their speech effectively, if, I mean, if necessary, if, if the college has certain things that it expects of all its students, students are agreeing to abide by those constraints, and so the college is, is free to do what they want. Um, now, I think it's quite striking there that people might use that term, the college is free to do what it wants. The college, the organization, has a freedom, and it is therefore free to limit the freedom of individual students. Um, I think that, that 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 sort of intuitive recognition that we don't think about enough um, is going to require us to think more, much more about what we mean by freedom. Uh, but what I want to highlight for you already is that if you took that kind of line and said um, the government can't limit free speech, but a private organization can, then effectively what you're saying is that it's not that freedom as such is a good. It's not that individual freedom is, is necessarily good or free speech is necessarily good. It's simply the case that government coercion, at least uh, from a, at a high level, from a, is bad. It's, it's, people might make, do all kinds of bad things in the name of free speech, but on the whole, allowing them to speak is a lesser evil than empowering a government to restrain them. And then presumably, then you don't have the same fear, perhaps, about restraints that might operate in terms of limiting appropriate speech within smaller private contexts. Um, but note, then, that that's very different from a view that would see um, freedom and freedom of speech as intrinsically good. Because if they are intrinsically good, then uh, why is it okay for an entity like Patrick Henry College to limit them. Why would we don't, if we think freedom is good, we don't allow people to sell themselves into slavery. You say that's, you know, that's, that's not something, you're not free to deny your freedom. So then wouldn't we want to say you're not free to put yourself under an organization that's going to limit your freedom, right? If freedom is, is a good, it's a good at every level, and it's not good to allow any organization to restrain it. And so then the author, that's what the author of this opinion column thinks. Freedom of expression is such a good that any institution that limits it, it, that no institution should be free to limit it effectively. Um, I think the problem with that, of course, is that we recognize that institutions have to be free to limit certain things, at least, uh, regardless of what we, we think about, you know, particular policies of Patrick Henry College. But institutions have to be free to limit the freedom of individuals within them if they are to attain their goods and their goals as institutions. Right? Institutions have a common good they are seeking together that is only possible if everybody involved is 
on the same page or is, is ready to operate under the same rules, is, ready, is willing to limit their freedom within the larger entity. So these initial observations, I think, uh, can, can, can point us in the direction of, of four bigger questions that I want us to be wrestling about when we think about freedom. So first, we could say, is freedom something that is threatened only by state coercion, or can freedom also be threatened by other forms of social control? Can a college or a family or a church or a community or media or whatever function to limit freedom? Or is freedom only something that's seen in relation to the state? Second, is freedom, that is, is freedom something that is threatened only by outside forces or agents, or can freedom be threatened by things within oneself? Okay? The purpose of a rule requiring students to speak respectfully, could, you could say this is framed as effectively saying, um, if, if students gave free reign to their passions and did not learn to conduct themselves with decorum around others, they are not actually free. Their freedom it can be their own freedom can be threatened by their own bad behavior. We are helping them become more free by, by teaching them self-discipline, okay, on a certain conception of freedom. Is freedom something that belongs only to individuals? The third question. Is freedom something that belongs only to individuals, or can we also speak of communities or social groups being free? And then fourth, is freedom a good in itself to be encouraged, or is it simply that coercion is bad, and thus freedom has to be grudgingly permitted? Now, on these first three questions, my own view would be one that I think challenges the modern liberal consensus. Modern liberal consensus tends to say that freedom is threatened only that freedom, go in reverse from three to one, I guess. The freedom is something that belongs only to individuals. Freedom can then therefore be threatened only by things outside those individuals. And specifically, freedom is something that's threatened only by state coercion. I would want to challenge all three of those. And then the question of, is freedom a good in itself? Uh, I would say it depends what we mean by freedom, as we're going to explore. Now, when I speak of the modern liberal consensus, um, what I have in mind, of course, by liberal is not is not the, the term that the word liberal has the, the word liberal has come to mean. Um, the uh, the historic meaning of the term liberal is, is is almost better captured by the modern idea of, of libertarianism. Uh, but basically, the, the liberal consensus, as it, um, it took root, uh, we see particularly in someone like uh, John Stuart Mill, who we're going to talk with later, uh, the ideal of individual liberty an individual liberty that is primarily understood in terms of non-interference. And um, this idea has come, uh, we, we now have the movement known as neoliberalism, which is kind of the, the, the restatement of this ideal, particularly within the economic realm. So what we now often call political conservatives, confusingly, are what are also called, um, among theorists, neoliberals. Political conservatives now tend to espouse a kind of a view of economic liberty as non-interference, maximal non-interference of the economic actors, which is known as neoliberalism. Um, so conservatives nowadays are, are likely to be followers of, uh, many conservatives um, would be followers of someone like Friedrich Hayek or even uh, Ludwig von Mises, uh, forefathers seen in many circles as fathers of libertarianism, um, and who themselves would use the label classical liberal for themselves. In any case, what we see really across the political spectrum now, uh, or at least 
for the last few decades, and some it, it seems to be changing perhaps, but is a kind of common agreement on the harm principle as the, the kind of lingua franca of contemporary politics, this idea that everyone should be free um, to act as they see fit so long as they are not harming others. Now, the difference is simply that liberals are, what we now call liberals, are more likely to see certain forms of economic um, dominant, domination as harming others, whereas conservatives would say, no, if someone doesn't get, you know, if someone gets taken advantage of the marketplace, that's, that's, that's just their own fault. Um, and conservatives would see, um, uh, say, abortion as harming the unborn child and therefore to be outlawed, whereas progressives would say, no, there's no unborn child to be harmed. It's the mother that's being harmed by forcing her to do something she doesn't want. But everyone is really kind of operating the same definition of liberty as non-interference limited by the harm principle. Now, um, and what I want, what I really want us to come, come away from this lecture with an understanding of is that conservatives have basically, they've adopted this language, which historically was liberal categories, and which I think necessarily um, is necessarily going to work against us. Okay, if we if we have this ideal of um, liberty as non-interference, as long as you don't harm anyone else, um, then that's going to leave us without very good categories for explaining um, why we shouldn't seek to maximize every form of liberty in every context that we can, and and let and and and. and basically turn people loose to follow their, their desires and their sexual orientations and their, their, their lifestyle choices uh, in ways that, that fundamentally undermine uh, communities in the pursuit of virtue. So um, let me then offer here in the next section a short history of freedom, okay? Different things that the word freedom has meant in different eras just to help us realize perhaps how historically particular our own understanding was. Is. So first, um, in ancient Greece, this idea of freedom existed in relation to the idea of necessity. Uh, Hannah Arendt is someone really worth reading on this. She explains that freedom for the ancient Greeks was won from necessity by the subjection of others. And freedom existed only in the sphere of equality that was defined by the polis. Freedom then was not a matter of being left alone in the private sphere, the private sphere was actually was, was the sphere that was characterized by necessity. Freedom was understood as active engagement and self-disclosure in the public sphere. And then here's a quote here. What all Greek philosophers, no matter how opposed to polis life, took for granted is that freedom is exclusively located in the political realm, that necessity is primarily a pre-political phenomenon characteristic of the private household organization, and that force and violence are justified in this sphere because they are the only means to master necessity, for instance, by ruling over slaves, and to become free. Because all human beings are subject to necessity, they are entitled to violence towards others. Violence is the pre-political act of liberating oneself from the necessity of life for the freedom of the world. Uh, the polis was distinguished from the household in that it knew only equals, whereas the household was the center of the strictest inequality. To be free meant both not to be subject to the necessity of life or to the command of another, and not to be in command of oneself. It meant neither to rule nor to be ruled. 
Thus, within the realm of the household, freedom did not exist, for the household head, its ruler, was considered to be free only insofar as he had the power to leave the household and enter the political realm where all were equals. All right. So freedom can only be enjoyed in, in, a, in, a, in the community of one's peers and in the, the acts of self-disclosure um, that enable one to, to realize one's freedom within that context. Freedom of just, just being left alone to oneself is not, is not freedom uh, in, in, the, in this uh, ancient Greek understanding. So that, that, that big quote was from Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition. Now, moving on, more briefly, in ancient Rome, we have something perhaps a bit, definitely has more to do with our conception of freedom because it actually informed the Founding Fathers. There's more concern with the constitutional dimensions of freedom and the danger of tyranny. Uh, so the need of um, political protections to, 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 to maintain freedom. Uh, but this is, the tyranny is understood fundamentally in terms of arbitrary power. It's not how much, how far the power extends, how much the republic has authority over, um, but how arbitrary versus law-bound is. So freedom meant the government of laws rather than men, to use um, Cicero's famous phrase. And freedom encouraged the cultivation of public virtue and the joint pursuit of the common good. Tyranny undermined public spiritedness because tyranny led to flattery, mutual suspicion, and self-protective measures. Okay, it, 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 tyranny basically broke up the unity of the body politic by pitting individuals against one another and uh, in, in seeking to, to flatter the tyrant and, and, and be suspicious of one another. Um, however, the Romans did have a strong emphasis on private property, which is a key dimension of, of our concept of freedom now. Private property for them secured the walls or the boundaries within which the pater familias exercised a dominative authority over his household. So again, there was no freedom within the household, uh, in the household realm. Um, but but the, 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 the pater familias did have private property ensure that he had a zone of autonomy, as it were, against the laws. And this is, um, relates to some extent to our, our, our modern liberal conception of freedom. Now, in the medieval context, of course, this is a huge period. There's, there's no one medieval context, but just touching a couple things. Um, we see um, the language of freedom here being often used in, in, the, in the Holy Roman Empire in the context of the free cities, the free cities of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, these were free cities in the sense that they were self-governing entities within the empire. They had a, they had a level of political autonomy. This didn't mean that they were necessarily characterized by individual freedom within them, Often quite the contrary. This wasn't necessarily seen as an ideal, uh, but it's rather it's the freedom is seen as in um, you know more local rule rather than distant rule is a means by which we have freedom. And this same ideal drove the Reformation. Um, the, so much of the Reformation was driven by the desire for national churches to have autonomy from this distant papal authority. Um, now, so you certainly see this, this rhetoric in the English Reformation. Um, and, and again, it didn't necessarily, the, the English, the Church of England was still had strict rules of conformity within it, but these were rules that were, these were English rules, local rules, they were not imposed by some distant authority. 
Uh, the Magna Carta, of course, comes from the medieval period, and here we have the idea of political liberties um, taking shape. And political liberties are enumerated rights or immunities which limited the arbitrary power of a ruler. They're, they're framed more in the vein of concessions. The ruler is, is promising, uh, you know, he could in principle have authority over these things, but he is promising uh, not to use his authority over these various these, these things, that have, liberties that have been guaranteed to his subjects. It should be noted the idea of private property, which looms so large in the Roman period, is actually under a lot of suspicion in the medieval period. Um, if theologically, you do have a, a gradual um, defense of private property taking shape, but uh, not in anything like the kind of absolute form that the Romans um, uh, prized. Now, in the Reformation, um, again, this is a huge topic. I just, I just want to quote this one thing. That the, we have this idea of Christian liberty that comes out of the Reformation. It's a huge theme, very often misunderstood. And I just want to quote uh, this one passage that I think gives you an idea of how alien this way of liberty might be to uh, our modern way of talking about liberty. So, Christian liberty is not a wandering and unruly license by which we... This is Oh, sorry. I'm quoting from this, this fantastic little document drafted by the, the Dutch Stranger Church, this, this community of Dutch exiles living in London in the 1560s. The Christian liberty is not a wandering and, un, and unruly license by which we may do or leave undone whatsoever we list at our pleasure, but it is a free gift bestowed upon us by Christ our Lord, by the which the children of God, that is, all the faithful, being delivered from the curse of the law, or eternal death, and from the heavy yoke of the ceremonial law, and being endowed with the Holy Ghost, begin willingly of their own accord to serve God in holiness and righteousness. Now, um, if we move, so what you notice there is this liberty is understood as a freedom to obey, actually. Right? It's, a freedom, the, the, it's the freedom that comes from actually obeying God's commands. Um, I mean, it's also related, but it, it's also the inward freedom from the, the fear of sin and death, the, the, the freedom that comes from justification. But it's not, at this point yet, a, a political freedom, per se. Now, in the English Civil War period, um, as this great scholar Quentin Skinner has shown, uh, is characterized by a retrieval of the Roman theory of liberty, which is focused, as we noted, on constitutional checks against arbit an arbitrary rule. Now, this is actually formulated against Thomas Hobbes' concept of freedom. And Thomas Hobbes, we see articulating really early on that this uh, the idea that you are free as long as you're, you know, generally left alone. So you could have a, a, a benevolent dictator who has absolute authority over his people, but, you know, if he mostly leaves them alone, they're free. And the English Civil War writers, um, the English Republicans, said, no, that's not true because your freedom hangs on the whim of this arbitrary rule. It can be taken away at any point. And, Therefore, it's not really freedom. It's not really freedom unless it's, it's guaranteed in some way. So they insisted on the connection, um, on, on the need for representative law-bound government and saw that this was actually necessary for the development of personal and public virtue. Um, that without, without the freedom that came from government of laws, you didn't have um, the ability for people to actually develop uh, in, in personal and public virtue. Um, they also, however, along with the ancient Romans, stressed strongly private property as a key guarantee of freedom. Now, uh, another figure worth touching on in this history of freedom is Immanuel Kant. Uh, Kant has a very different idea of freedom. 
Um, it's bound up with his notion of autonomy, which is to say, being a law to oneself. And now, he, does, he didn't mean that in anything like the sense that we often are like, liable to think of today. When we talk about individual autonomy, really for us that means, you know, sort of that I can make up my own rules. Every individual can make up their own rules. For Kant, no, you don't make up your own rules. There is um, there's a universal, there's a categorical imperative that you submit to. Um, but you, the rules that, but you prescribe this rule to yourself. You are governed by reason. Reason prescribes the rule of the categorical imperative to yourself. And it's the same rule for everybody. But the important thing is it's not imposed by anybody else on me. I impose this rule on myself. Every rational person does this the same way, though. So um, the rules that you prescribe to yourself are the rules of universal reason and absolute moral duty. So the truly free person, then, for Kant, is someone who recognizes that there is only one rational way to act and who acts in obedience to this ideal alone and is not influenced by his passions at all. Now, of course, it's worth noting that this concept of freedom can fit fairly well with authoritarianism, right? I mean, um, you can have a an authoritarian government that is helping everyone to be more rational by showing them the, 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 the one rational way to act, right? Um, and so they can be more truly free. Right? Now, John Stuart Mill um, is the next figure in our narrative, and here we first encounter something much more like how we think, tend to think of liberty in America today. Right? Mill encourages individuality, so total opposite of Kant, right? In, in, in the, the idea, you know, uh, instead of every individual submitting to the same kind of rational norm, Mill wants experimentation with different modes of life. He, his liberty is entirely conceived in terms of the liberty of the individual over against society. It is a liberty to be left alone. It is laissez-faire. Quote from Mill, The only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to attain it. Now, Mill explicitly highlights what he sees as the limitations of the earlier English tradition of thinking about liberty, which was to say that sort of focus on constitutional uh, checks against arbitrary authority. He sees that this fails to reckon with the tyranny of the majority. Okay, the people themselves can um, become threats to individual liberty. Mill thinks the majority can tyrannize over the individual in many ways, besides the law, actually. Quote, he says, Protection, therefore, against the tyranny of the magistrate is not enough. There needs protection against the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling, against the tendency of society to impose, by other means than civil penalties, its own ideas and practices as rules of conduct on those who dissent from them to fetter the development, and if possible, to prevent the formation of any individuality, not in harmony with its ways, and to compel all characters to fashion themselves upon the model of its own. So the tyranny of public opinion is really a lot of what he's concerned about. Um, the, 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 the strict constraints of, of Victorian um, moral orthodoxy is what he's reacting to. So Mill introduces the harm principle as the necessary limit to prevent liberty from transgressing the liberty of others. Uh, quote, the sole end for which mankind are warranted individually or collectively in interfering with liberty of action of any of their number is self-protection. That the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, 
is not a sufficient warrant. The only part of anyone, of the conduct of anyone, for which he is amenable to society, that is, can be constrained by society, is that which concerns others. In the part which merely concerns himself, still quoting Mill here, his independence is of right absolute. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign, unquote. So here with Mill, we find a very uh, thorough and forthright statement of the liberal, the modern liberal concept of liberty, the sort of the individual sovereignty over himself. This next section, I want to develop the liberal conception a bit more by looking at um, two mid-20th century English theorists, both expats who came from totalitarian societies. Um, and so they, they really uh, valued the liberty they found in the West and uh, developed it more um, conceptually, which was uh, Friedrich Hayek and Isaiah Berlin. So with Friedrich Hayek and his road to serfdom, we see the same concern with individuality present that we saw in Mill, the same concern for the oppression of a homogenous society. So it's, again, it's not merely the oppression that could come from the government, it's the oppression that could come from the um, expectations of society. So Hayek writes, the respect for the individual man, qua man, that is, the that is, sorry, that is the recognition of his own views and tastes as supreme in his own sphere, however narrowly that may be circumscribed, and the belief that it is desirable that men should develop their own individual gifts and bents. This is his idea of liberty. That said, his main concern is with the growth of totalitarian governments. Whereas Mill had seen that the demand for freedom as participation could lead to a tyranny of the majority, Hayek worries that a subsequent demand for freedom from, as liberation from want could lead to totalitarianism. So uh, uh, this is what uh, Hayek sees in socialism. So quoting Hayek, to the great apostles of political freedom, the word had meant freedom from coercion, freedom from the arbitrary power of other men, release from the ties which left the individual no choice but obedience to the orders of the superior to whom he was attached. The new freedom promised, however, was to be freedom from necessity, release from the compulsion of the circumstances which inevitably limit the range of choices of us all, although for some very much, much, very much more than for others. Before man could be truly free, the despotism of physical want had to be broken. The restraints of the economic system relaxed. Freedom, in this sense, is, of course, merely another name for power or wealth. Okay, this is unquote. So Hayek here is, is, sees this notion of, of freedom in opposition to necessity, which, interesting, has some overlap with the ancient Greek view that we looked at, um, so that being under economic necessity... And, and, and sort of bondage to the, the forces of the market, the forces of material want, um, that is what freedom seeks to free us from. Right? Um, that was the rhetoric of um, a lot of uh, the socialists. And Hayek, Hayek thinks this is just plain confusion. This is not what freedom is. Freedom is not power or what it is not. Um, freedom is not capacity or wealth. Um, so, then let's move on to Isaiah. We're going to come back to this point. Let's look, on, look at Isaiah Berlin now. Now, um, Berlin famously formulated two concepts of liberty. In his 1958 lecture uh, by this title, Berlin's Western liberal conception of liberty from rival accounts that tended, he thought, towards totalitarianism. The first he called the idea of negative liberty. The second, positive liberty. 
The first, he said, designates, quote, the area within which the subject is or should be left to do or to be whatever, what he is able to do or be without interference by other persons. So it is a freedom of non-interference, of being left alone. Now, Berlin acknowledges that this cannot yield a libertarian utopia because an indefinite extension of my field of action can't coexist with the indefinite extension of every other individual's field of action. Right? You can't, you can't just keep enlarging the sphere within which I'm left alone because it's going to bump up against other people's spheres. So he says, the freedom of some must at times be curtailed to secure the freedom of others. But he's still, on the whole, a firm champion of this concept. Now, the second idea, the idea of positive liberty, he said, concerns, quote, the source of control or interference that can determine someone to do or to be this rather than that. Okay? It is the, the, the source of the control or the interference, um, which is to say, I can be unfree for things that come within me, from things that come from within me, if they are not actually coming from um, my, my true self, my true desires, my true purposes. Um, so the first concept of freedom concerns the world, the objective field of action to open before us. The second concerns the agent, the subjective source of action. Right? I have freedom vis-a-vis -vis the world, but I might not have freedom as an agent uh, from the standpoint of the view of positive liberty. For the former, the idea of negative liberty, why I act is irrelevant. It is entirely up to me whether I act for good reasons, bad reasons, or no reasons, so long as my range of possible actions is not foreclosed by outside agents. This is the view of liberty that is, I think, most familiar to us as, as 21st century Americans. However, the latter view of liberty, the positive liberty, was actually the norm for much of human history. And for this view, why I act, the internal conditions of action are all important. All right? um, Berlin explains in this view, quote, I wish my life and decisions to depend upon myself. I wish to be a subject, not an object, to be moved by reasons, by conscious purposes, which are my own, not by causes which affect me, as it were, from the outside. Now, in this view, to act thoughtlessly or in response to enslaving passions is clearly not, on such account, to be properly free. Now, although I, I and Berlin are developing this concept with relation to an individual, the same would go from, for community. Right? The analogy here is actually as old as Plato, Plato's Republic, although Plato doesn't primarily use language of justice, uh, of freedom, but of justice. But I think we can translate Plato's account into the language of positive freedom. So, he, he, he recognizes that an individual soul is free to realize its proper purpose when it overcomes the rowdier passions that pull it in the wrong directions. Similarly, he says, a community or a city is free to realize its proper purpose to the extent that it disciplines its rowdier members and convinces them to get on board. And to the extent that, that the individuals identify with the community or institution and find their sense of meaning in it, they might be able to see the community maximizing its freedom as an extension of their own freedom. Right? We come back to the example of the, the college that might, a college or a church that limits the freedom of its individual members in order to achieve a common purpose, and they actually see that freedom to, see, to achieve a common purpose as an extension of their own freedom. Um, it's, it's possible to have that vision for a political society as well, although Berlin thinks this is somewhat dangerous, liable to totalitarianism. Right? On this view, he says that whatever the true goal of man is must be identical with his freedom. 
Now, he notes that many of the most repressive societies have justified their actions as an attempt to enable their members to achieve their true purpose and thus to be truly free. He sees this actually in Soviet Russia and in, in Hitler's Germany. Right? They're saying this, the vision of this society is actually what the true goal of man is, and so this is actually where your freedom is found. Um, Berlin actually says that this is logically coherent. If their vision of the good were indeed true and universal, then it might well be true that enabling individuals to achieve that good is the best is maximizing their freedom. But he says the problem is that these projects claim to have discovered the truth for mankind, the good. And in fact, no such thing is available to us. We don't know what the truth of mankind is, and so we must let a thousand flowers bloom, a thousand different experiments in the good life. Now, um, I think it's, it's worth highlighting that this is going to be somewhat problematic. It should, should seem somewhat problematic to us as Christians because we do claim to have the truth, know what the truth for mankind is. We do claim to know what the good is. And, and our own tradition of speaking about freedom, as we saw in that quotation um, from the, the, the Dutch stranger churches, is, you know, uh, freedom is, um, is, 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 is that by which we begin willingly of our own accord to serve God in holiness and righteousness. And, um, or, as the Book of Common Prayer puts it, to serve him is perfect freedom. So you definitely have this idea of positive liberty, of, of freedom being found in pursuing your true end, is deeply rooted in the Christian tradition. Now, there's also some other things to note about the liberal tradition of, of thinking about freedom that I think are problematic. One is the, the premise of self-ownership, which we saw in um, Mill, this idea that over himself the individual is sovereign. Right? For Christians, this isn't going to work. We, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Okay, we, we might be ways to reformulate this to accomplish some of what Mill intends, but I think the language of the individual being sovereign over himself is just is theologically uh, very dangerous. The other thing is that, you know, for, for we saw for Hayek and, and for Mill, this idea that individual, individual self-determination is, is, is intrinsically is good. We want to encourage as much individuality as possible. And um, I think the logical endpoint of this is Anthony Kennedy's famous statement, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. For, for these guys, the, the ultimate justification for freedom of action is this idea of freedom of thought. And the justification for freedom of thought is the idea that the inherent indeterminacy of truth and plurality of the good. But, as Christians, as I noted, we are committed to, a determ to the determinacy of truth and the unity of the good. I think also a problem within this picture is that, within this view of sort of negative liberty, is that freedom is only seen as a property of individuals, not of communities. I think we need to have a way, as Christians, about talking, of talking about uh, the freedom of, of communities. Um, also, freedom in this view is only threatened by things external to the individual. I think scriptures are full of statements about freedom as something that is threatened by things within us. We are, for freedom Christ has set us free, do not be subject again to a yoke of bondage. What is the yoke of bondage that Paul is concerned about? It's not, it's not something the Romans are, are going to do. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's an outside thing only to the extent that it's, it's something that the, the false teachers in Galatia are bringing this yoke of bondage, but ultimately the, the believer puts this yoke of bondage on themselves when they hold to a false understanding of who Christ is.
um, on the the liberal conception of freedom, what you what what you do yourself can't be a violation of freedom. Freedom only comes from from trying to um, outside agents trying to constrain individuals. I think there's also a problem with um, the, the harm principle. Doesn't you know we have to say freedom? My freedom is going to bump in. It's always going to bump into your freedom. My freedom to be left alone as much as possible, uh, except when I run into your sphere in which you're trying to be left alone as much as possible. So we're always it's this inherently competitive thing in which we try to use the harm principle to adjudicate it. I think um, for reasons that I don't have time to go into here, that the you know harm principle really breaks down pretty quickly. Um, as a, a neat and tidy rule for for trying to determine when someone's freedom can and can't be limited. The last thing I want to talk about here, though, is the distinction between power and freedom that uh, we saw Hayek particularly zeroing in at as something he thought was deeply confused in his view. And in his view of freedom is just possibility. It is not. It is not. Potency. You use language from O'Donovan that we'll get to in a minute. Um, so, economic, it, you can be poor or you can be rich, you have the same amount of freedom on this view, um, on, on Hayek's view. And, and, and he thought that to talk about freedom in relation to material, you know, lack of freedom in the context of material poverty was just a confusion. But many people found it very persuasive. Um, just a quote here for, from. Um, a, a recent uh, campaign uh, letter of, uh, of, of Bernie Sanders, who actually, interestingly, frames his campaign program in terms of the language of freedom. So here's some questions he asks. Right? He, says, or he says, freedom is an often used word, but it's time we took a hard look at what that word actually means. Ask yourself, what does it actually mean to be free? Are you truly free if you are unable to go to a doctor when you are sick or face financial bankruptcy when you leave the hospital? Are you truly free if you cannot afford the prescription drug you need to stay alive? Are you truly free when you spend half your limited income on housing and are forced to borrow money from a payday lender at 200% interest rates? Are you truly free if you are forced to work 60 or 80 hours a week because you can't find a job that pays a living wage? Are you truly free if you are a veteran who put your life in line to defend this country and now sleep out on the streets? To me, those, the answer to those questions in the wealthiest nation on earth is no, you are not free. So, I think uh, we might we might question the uh, where, where where Sanders is going with this, but the intuitive appeal of his statements: Are you free if you are for are you truly free if you are forced to work sixty or eight hours a week because you can't find a job that pays living wage? Well, we think freedom is forced. If you're forced to do something, you're not free. And well, you might not be forced to do it by someone putting a gun to your head, but if you are forced to to do something. Um, by the pressure of, of, of survival or survival of yourself or, or your dependents, then it seems, it seems implausible to say in that situation you were free. So I, and I, I think uh, this language is, is getting at something intuitive about our concept of freedom that shows the limitations of the approach that says, oh, well, no, I mean, as long as, as, long as no one's stopping you, you're free. Um, what, you know... James, economist James K. Galbraith points out is that, that that's effectively saying you're free as long as you have money to buy things. You know, freedom is understood as, as maximum options in the marketplace, but if you don't have the capacity to enter the marketplace, then you don't get to participate in this freedom. And so it seems like the question of capacity can't be 
neatly separable. Now, I think we can shed some insight on all of this, on why our conceptions of freedom can be so varied and seemingly contradictory um, by looking at the work of Oliver O'Donovan. O'Donovan, O'Donovan says that um, freedom is, 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 is such a complex, it's such a holistic thing that it really only comes into focus when it's under attack, and different kinds of attack bring different features into focus. So, quoting O'Donovan here, freedom is a term used almost exclusively to focus attention on the possibilities of its loss. In English, we have no corresponding negative term in regular use. Yet when we speak of freedom, it is almost invariably to warn against or to object to that negative possibility for which we have no regular term. Freedom is the looking glass in which we search our features anxiously for signs of unfreedom. But the collapse of any vital condition can occur in, any, in a multitude of ways. So what appear to be straightforward descriptions of freedom turn out to be hugely various political ideals, some of them in tension with others. Basically, he's saying here that the term freedom is like the term health. What, is, what does health mean? Well, we can talk about health more clearly when we talk about it in relation to unhealth. You, you have, you're back to health. We talk about being back to health in the face of various illnesses, which uh, take many different forms. Similarly, we can't think freedom is such a holistic thing that to say what it is, we really can only say what it is in the context of particular threats. And so we saw this in our survey with things necessity, freedom exists in relation to necessity. Freedom can be seen in relation to sin. Freedom can be seen in relation to the idea of arbitrary rule. Freedom can be seen in relation to, necess or to, to coercion. And freedom can be seen in relation to irrationality. Now, so O'Donovan says that effectively that, that Hayek is wrong to play off the, the notion of freedom of possibility with freedom as potency, all right? That, that, that actually people like Bernie Sanders are onto something when they recognize that power and ability are part of what we mean by freedom. And so O'Donovan says the potency of freedom requires possibility as its object. For freedom is exercised in the cancellation of all possibilities in a given situation by the decision to actualize one of them. If there are no possibilities, there could be no room for freedom. So this is, this is why the totalitarian idea doesn't work. You can't say, well, look, I'm empowering you to be who you were truly meant to be, which is to do this one thing that I'm telling you to do. Everybody do the same thing, right? Um, you've got to have some possibilities um, within which to actualize your potency. But he says the problem, Madame goes on, is the idea that, quote, we can maximize freedom by multiplying the number of possibilities open to us. For if possibilities are to be meaningful for free choice, they must be well-defined by structures of limit. So putting together, O'Donnell's written about freedom in many places, very, very fruitfully in my opinion, and kind of putting together the different things he said about it, I think we could venture this as a common definition. So freedom is the capacity for meaningful action, all right? Capacity for meaningful action. It's, so it's actually related to O'Donovan's, uh, the concept of moral agency, he also discussed in this context, which he defines as the capacity to participate in the order of creation by knowledge and action. So um, an, an action, uh, really, O'Donovan would say that my phrase, a meaningful action, is sort of redundant because an action by definition, requires it has to be meaningful to be an action. It's an intelligible deed, he says. It's something that we can explain if we're asked, why, why did you do that thing? Why did you do that thing? You can give an explanation, therefore it's an action. That means we need to have some idea of final causes, of ends or purposes. If I just sort of scratch my chin while I'm lecturing, 
That might be an operation, but it's not usually an action, except in this situation it is an action because I'm doing it for a reason, which is to make a point. But of just do, doing something absent-mindedly is not acting. Um, it, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a free act. So to act with a purpose means I must act in knowledge. I must know something about the context within which I act, the ends for which I act, the meaning that my action is going to communicate in order to, to choose to act in this way. So we don't usually attribute moral agency to sleepwalkers. We wouldn't therefore attribute freedom to sleepwalkers. They may be, in as much as nothing's in their way, they may be free to walk around, but they're not free in the sense they're not, they're not choosing to walk around. So O'Donovan will also speak um, in terms that can, can be kind of jarring to us, of authority as the objective correlate of freedom. Authority actually goes along with freedom. It's not over against freedom. Because authority is what provides us a reason to act. In the absence of any kind of authority that's summoning us to act, it doesn't have to be a political authority, right? You think you have moral authority, right? But in the absence of any kind of authority summoning us to act, we would only be capable of random and arbitrary lurches in this direction or that direction. And it doesn't seem right to define that as freedom. Now, to talk about meaningful action brings in the idea of community because meaning is a social thing, right? I don't, there's, no, there's no action that is meaningful without a context of meaning to, to, to give it meaning, right? That, that um, meaning requires structure, what O'Donnell calls structures of communication. That's what society is. Society is structures of communication. And therefore, he says, freedom is the realization of individual powers within social forms. Freedom is when I, as an individual, am, am capable of acting within a context in which my action can have certain meanings, have certain effects, because it is understood. Right? So, O'Donnell says, quote, if freedom is the self-realization of the individual within social forms, the twin guiding lights of sociality and individuality mark the runway along which any discussion of freedom must get airborne. Freedom speaks of a certain conformability of society to individuals and of individuals to society. Now, I think on the basis of this, what I want to just offer briefly for you is um, something that I've I really just come up with, which is a, a fourfold classification of the idea of liberty. So uh, um, Berlin wrote this famous essay, Two Concepts of Liberty, then the political philosopher Quentin Skinner, a couple decades ago, wrote a really interesting essay reflecting on Berlin, offering what he often was the third concept of liberty, which he saw as this liberty of, non, of freedom from arbitrary authority that was such concern of, of really the founding fathers. Um, this idea that even if you were left alone by an arbitrary, by, by, by benevolent dictator, you still weren't free. But I don't think Ber uh, Skinner actually quite got very clearly at, at why that was necessarily the case. It really just comes down to, well, you're not being interfered with right now, but you might be interfered with in the future. In which cases, it really, this is really a different concept from freedom of non-interference, right? The Berlin's concepts are freedom of non-interference and the freedom of sort of, um, of rationality, freedom to be oneself. And Skinner's third concept of liberty really just comes down to freedom of, from potential interference. So as I was reflecting on this more in light of uh, O'Donovan's work in particular, 
it came to me that really to properly map out concepts of liberty, of freedom, we need, um, we need to think along two axes. Now, it would be helpful here if, if I had a board to draw on, but if you can visualize for me, we've got, you have um, the x-axis would be uh, going from the individual on the left to the social on the right, the individual dimension, the social dimension of liberty, um, following from what O'Donovan says about that, uh, that uh, how did he put it, that um, the twin guiding lights of sociality and individuality mark the runway along which any discussion of freedom must get airborne. So you've got that on your x-axis. Then your y-axis, on the top you have um, the, the negative dimension and the bottom you have the positive dimension. You have the, the negative dimension, the, 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 the things that um, you must be free from in order to have freedom. And then uh, on the bottom, things that you must be uh, free for, free to, um, in order to have uh, liberty. So in the top left corner, we have the individual negative dimension of liberty. And this is the liberty of non-interference, our sort of familiar liberal concept of liberty that we get, that we see articulated by Berlin in particular. All right? And the, the insight here is that, of course, if individuals are so constrained to act within a very limited range of social forms given to them, that they cease to experience themselves as acting and feel rather that they're being passively molded, this would deny the possibility of action and therefore freedom has been lost. Right? You need, there needs to be a realm of possibility, otherwise one is simply being, is indeed being channeled or forced into a particular course of action. Um, and I would note here that the, um, the importance of this, this liberty of non-interference, actually increases along with increasing education. That it is, it's precisely as people become aware of greater possibilities that might hypothetically be available to them, that the limitation of possibilities within a particular society becomes experienced as a crippling threat to liberty. Right. When you're only really aware of one form of life that you might take, one, you know, your, your father was a blacksmith and your grandfather was a blacksmith and so on and so forth, and they all lived in this village, um, the lack of possibilities available to you and the constraint of, of social expectations and so on um, is not experienced as viscerally as a threat to liberty as it is in a, in a more developed period of civilization where... Um, increased education has exposed people to an awareness of other things that they might in fact choose to do or choose to be, but they can't. So there's your individual negative, liberty of non-interference. Now, um, top right corner, you have the social negative. Then this we will call non-domination following um, uh, Quentin Skinner. And I think, or we could, but we could also call it non-arbitrariness. And I think this is where we want to get at, um, perhaps a little more clearly than Skinner himself, what's really going on here. Um, I think that the, the, the distinctive issue of living upon, under a, um, an arbitrary ruler, a, a government of, uh, that's not a government of laws, um, is this, the, the, the individual is conscious here of living within a system of social norms that is imposed arbitrarily by authority rather than being given in the fabric of the community or the fabric of reality. All right. Um, thus they would lack a genuine structure of meaning within which to order their lives. They know that the range of possibilities currently given to them and the meaning of actions that they might seek to pursue 
hangs on a whim and might be different tomorrow than it is today. This paralyzes the capacity for action and freedom has been lost. Now, it's important to note that this threat to liberty can arise not merely from the tyranny of an uh, arbitrary individual authority or dictator, but also from the arbitrary um, dictates of the crowd, of the mob. Um, and it, this can arise in any situation in which morality and meaning has, come, has become arbitrary, has become unmoored from objective or historic norms that would enable the individual to know how his actions will be received, to know how they will be um, assessed, to know what meaning his communications will have. And we've witnessed this, I think, in the last couple decades, particularly in, in our culture, where there's been such a rapid erosion of traditional morality that statements and actions that once would have had uh, a certain meaning and would have been generally received as true or just or virtuous actions are now seen as false and now seen as um, signs of, of bigotry or homophobia or, or what have you. Um, and so this is experienced, I think, by many people um, as a loss of freedom. They have lost freedom to express themselves, not just because, not just because of you know outright sort of persecution in, in terms of uh, you know limitations on freedom of speech and, and so on and so forth, but simply because of the fact that uh, people feel that that they no longer know how to express themselves, how to communicate in a society in which um, the norms are, are now so unfixed. All right, so this is the, the social negative dimension of liberty, the, the, the freedom from, from domination or from arbitrariness. Now, let's look at the, the lower left corner, as it were, the individual positive, okay? So the individual conditions of liberty that are, that are, are a form of positive liberty. And this is where we get the idea of rationality, which crops up a lot in Berlin's account of positive liberty. So this is the idea that basically, um, if individuals lack the capacity to form clear purposes and to act upon those purposes, if their actions are subject to the whims of their own passions and they're unable to pursue any stable ends, then this denies the possibility of action and freedom has been lost. All right? So it's this um, individual positive dimension of liberty that is a particular concern in, well, I mean, in the Stoic philosophical tradition and, and, and in sort of modern forms of Neo-Stoicism and in Kant, but also in the Christian theological tradition, things like, as we saw in the Book of Common Prayer, his service is perfect freedom. This is, this is the freedom from, and so it should be noted here that the whole sort of negative and positive um, framework, you can, you can frame any of these in, in more negative or positive terms. But still, basically here you have the, the freedom from the passions that is the freedom of of rationality or the freedom of, um, uh, of, a, of a heart that is right with God, the freedom of a, basically, in short, a well-ordered soul, right? Um, a well-ordered soul that enables you to form clear purposes and to follow through upon those purposes. And if you lack that, then you experience that as a lack of freedom. Finally then, what about the social positive? And this is where we really come to a, a, what I would say is a fourth concept of liberty, which is not articulated by, by Berlin or Skinner, 
Although Berlin, interestingly, does mention it. He just he mentions it, discusses it very intriguingly, and then rejects it as not really, as related to, but not um, a species of freedom. And this is the idea of recognition, right? So we had rationality, now we have recognition. So the idea here, all right, this is the, the, the social dimension, the social positive dimension of liberty. And, and the idea here is that if individuals, the individuals need to be able to find a community of their fellows within which their actions can be seen to have meaning or to make some kind of a difference. All right? If they feel that they are invisible or acting within a vacuum or are hurling themselves like the existentialists into a chaos within which there are no given values that can make sense of their actions, then this paralyzes the capacity for action and freedom has been lost. So in the social dimension requires both, as we said, so the negative, um, a, a non domination on arbitrariness, a sense of the, there's not, there's not a, um, a, a tyranny of the will of an individual or of the, or of the mob that is um, destroying the, the structure of meaning. But there also needs to be a positive um, uh, community within which that meaning is, is recognized and, 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 and conferred upon an action. Um, and this is basically, this is getting at, I think, a, a lot of the experience of poverty. Um, O'Donovan has actually a good insight here, which is that, that, you know, we think of poverty in material terms, but there is an absolute poverty that is, is, is where the material, you know, actual lack of access to means of survival is the most urgent thing. But much of the experience of poverty is actually a, a, the experience of social exclusion, of lack of, that you are... You are too low on the ladder of the economic ladder in order to, um, to, to meaningfully appear within the society, to, uh, to be recognized within it, to feel like, again, to feel like you can act in a way that, that makes a difference or, or is recognized as having a meaning. So um, if you do not have a context within, if you feel like whatever you do, it doesn't make any difference in the world then you don't feel free. You, you, you feel free to, I mean, you, 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 your actions are not really actions because they are actions that do not, that do not overflow beyond yourself um, and, and do not take shape within the world. So um, this is where I think we need to understand this idea of recognition, um, a, a, a community, a context within which one's actions are received as meaningful is a key constituent of the idea of freedom. Now, what I want us to take away from all of this, uh, the basic point I want to make is simply that um, we cannot generate, as li liberalism has sought to do, an a priori account of precisely when communities or public authorities are justified in intervening to curtail individual liberty. Right? This is the way it's normally framed, is we have a, a narrow conception of liberty as non-interference, Obviously, sometimes interference is necessary, so when is it necessary? I think this is a wrong-headed way of framing the problem. It's not a question of when liberty can be curtailed in favor of some greater good. Rather, we should always be seeking, I think, to maximize liberty in this more holistic, four-dimensional sense of liberty. The question, really, um, for uh, sound politics is when one of these forms of liberty needs to be particularly emphasized in order to maintain the balance of the whole. And this, I think, depends on what the chief peril is at a given time. 
In some societies, at some points in history, the overriding threat is that of too much interference with the individual's ability to form and execute his own plans. At other points, the threat may be a collapse of the structures of meaning that would orient his actions, as individualism runs amok, and everyone is given the freedom to define their own concept of meaning and existence. I think this is the, the threat to freedom that we experience now. In some contexts, the greatest threat to freedom will be alienation and subjection to necessity, in which some individuals lack basic access to a community in which they can meaningfully act. And the conclusion that I really want to leave with you is that um, a prudent Christian politics then cannot be um, formulated in terms of a sort of one-time or one-size-fits-all policy or a principle of, um, of of what it means to maximize and protect freedom. You, you know, we can't just come up with a harm principle that's going to solve this for us. Um, rather, um, a prudent Christian politics needs to be constantly adaptive and responsive to the different threats to freedom that will arise from one of these four directions. And I hope that it's um, that those richer dimensions of um, a, a, a fuller politics of freedom that we can explore uh, in, in the rest of the papers uh, here at this conference. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, Advantes, or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved.